Well, hey, if you are new, we're in a series walking through the book of 1 Corinthians, and this morning we're in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. And so if you've got a Bible, make your way to 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 8. Uh, If you don't have a Bible and you didn't grab one of these when you walked in, we've got some hardback black ones on that table back there. If you'll just go and grab one of those, um, feel free to keep that. That's our gift to you as a church. Uh, But 1 Corinthians 8 is where we're going to spend our time together this morning. And uh, growing up, my grandparents had a spot in their house that was uh, right by the door uh, leading from the garage into the house where they would measure how tall my sister and I uh, were getting. And so you know, in the kind of day by day, sometimes it was hard to know if I really was growing and, and physically maturing and getting taller and all of that. But uh, every five or six months, I could take a new measurement and look at that wall and see kind of this objective proof of like, man, I'm, I'm like three inches taller than I was five or six months ago. Or man, I've grown like five inches taller in the past year. It was this uh, real objective proof that let me know I was physically maturing and I was growing and I was getting taller. And so it was pretty easy for us to do that when we were kids, right? Even if that process of getting taller uh, stopped a little bit earlier for some of us than it did for others, uh, you did have this objective way to measure if you were growing physically. But it's a little bit more difficult to measure if you're growing emotionally and spiritually, right? Like, Like, how do you measure that? How do you know if you're growing in your walk with Jesus? How do you know if you're maturing into a deeper walk with Him and a a deeper following of Him? How do you know if you could mark a a little bit higher on the chart than you could six months ago or a year ago? Well, what Paul does here in 1 Corinthians 8 is he lays out a few kind of tests for us to help us to see uh, and help us to know if we're growing spiritually, if we're maturing uh, into the fullness of Jesus as we follow him. And so he's going to give us a few tests, but overall what he's going to tell us is that we know we are growing in Jesus when we are growing in love. And so let's uh, look at this uh, together uh, this morning. We're 1 Corinthians chapter 8, we're going to read through the entire chapter. And so starting in verse 1, the very word of God to us this morning, it speaks to us like this. Paul says, now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there's no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist." However, not all possess this knowledge, but some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat, and no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple... Will he not be encouraged, if his conscience is weak, to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. Thus, sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. 
Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. So the first thing we see in this text is that spiritual maturity is demonstrated not in how much you know, but in how much you love. Um, So if you're new, we've been in this series in 1 Corinthians for a while. I'll just catch you up on where we've been. This uh, Corinthian church is a church made up of people who have been saved uh, out of some really uh, broken backgrounds. They used to be pagans and idol worshipers, and God uh, saved them and put them together in the church and united them around Jesus. But uh, what they're doing is learning what it means to follow Jesus and to not walk any longer in the ways and the values of the world. And so uh, they're divided by all these different things. They've divided themselves over and attached themselves kind of into tribes based on who their favorite charismatic leader was. And so Paul has written uh, this letter to the Corinthians to address the problems that are going on at their church, to address the questions they've asked of him, and to show how the gospel speaks into all the problems and the issues that they are dealing with at their church. And so for the first four or five chapters, Paul uh, addresses how the gospel speaks into their worldly view of leadership and, and what really matters and what's successful in the world. And then over the past few chapters, uh, we've seen Paul uh, shows how the gospel speaks into our sexuality and marriage and divorce and remarriage and singleness. And now uh, here in chapter 8, Paul moves into a new issue, answering a new question that the Corinthians have asked of him. And this issue is going to take us really all the way through Uh, chapter 10, this issue of food offered to idols. And I know maybe we read through that or you hear me say that and you're like, oh gosh, uh, we don't struggle with that anymore. So this is going to be a really boring couple of weeks. And and so yeah, like I'll say, while in other parts of the world, this, this really is a very live issue. Like other Christians in the world are dealing with this specific issue of what do you do with food offered to idols. It's not a specific circumstance that we're probably going to have to face here in America, and so we are going to have to do some work to translate it here. But I'll tell you, the principles that Paul lays out over the next few chapters about how we should think about our freedoms in Christ and how we should relate to others with those freedoms in Christ and how we should think about life in kind of the gray areas, these principles are just massive and they're a word that we need to hear. And because so much of our lives is lived in the gray areas, right? Like, there, there is a lot of black and white, both in the world and in Scripture. Like, don't commit adultery. That, that's pretty black and white, right? Like, you do that, you sin. Uh, don't steal. Don't take stuff that isn't yours. There's not a lot of, like, nuance you have to give to that. That's pretty clear. But, but even in areas like that, even in the Ten Commandments, there are some areas that do have uh, some gray. Because another one of the Ten Commandments is that we shouldn't lie, we shouldn't bear false witness, but there are times in Scripture, uh, like when Rahab deceives her people to hide the Israelite spies and protect them, and the, uh, the midwives deceive the Egyptians to keep the Hebrew baby boys that are being born alive, so that instead of killing them like the Pharaoh wants to, and Rahab is explicitly commended by God for doing that, and the midwives seem to be too, like it seems that they did the right thing. And so, what do you do with that? Right? Like, when is a lie not actually a lie? And this is so much of our lives. Like, yeah, drunkenness is clearly called sin in the Bible. Getting drunk is sinful, but is it wrong to drink alcohol? Is it a sin to vote for a certain candidate? Should you or should you not celebrate Halloween? 
Uh, should you watch this movie? Should you not watch that TV show? And on and on and on. In so many areas of our lives, we're really not given this kind of specific rule to follow. We have to use wisdom and apply the principles that Scripture lays out for us. And Paul's going to provide a lot of that wisdom for us over the next few chapters. And so he begins here by addressing this question and this issue of food offered to idols. And so if we're going to understand what he's talking about here, we need to bring a little bit in of what he's going to talk about in the next few chapters. And so what it seems like was going on here in Corinth is that you had all of these idols, all of these false gods that people worshipped, uh, and people would build temples for these idols. And, and they would offer animal sacrifices to these idols as a way to make this God be favorable towards them and pay attention to them and bless them and give them success in their job and in their life. And so they'd offer this animal sacrifice and they'd give some of that meat to the priest who was conducting the sacrifice, but then whatever was left over of the animal meat from that sacrifice, uh, they'd have a feast in the temple, kind of a feast of worship devoted to this God in service of this idol. Think of it kind of like a restaurant attached to the temple. And so they'd have this feast, and then whatever was left of the meat after that feast was over would then be kind of pushed out into the marketplace and sold in the marketplace. Think of like, kind of like a Corinthian Walmart. And it seems like most of the meat in, the, in circulation at this time uh, is getting its start at one of these idols' temples. And so if you wanted to eat meat in Corinth during this time, it was probably meat that had gotten its start at an idol's temple. And so uh, many of the people in the church of Corinth are asking, or uh, maybe more accurately, they're saying, we are free in Jesus to eat this meat. And it seems like a lot of people in the church are actually going to the idol's temples and partaking of these feasts and eating meat at the temple during these feasts uh, of worship offered to this God. And so Paul's going to address this over the next few chapters and hit it from a few different angles, but the first one he takes here uh, is by attacking their prideful view of their knowledge, because he repeats their slogan in verse 1 that when it comes to food offered to idols, we all possess knowledge. What, what they mean by that is that they possess the knowledge that these idols that the food's being offered to, they're, they're not really God. Like, they don't exist. They're false gods. They're not anything. And only God is the true God. And so it doesn't matter if we eat this meat offered to idols because these idols aren't real. But Paul says this sort of knowledge, it, it puffs up, but love builds up. And, and Paul's problem here is not just with their knowledge because he agrees, like, this is true. Idols aren't really God. They don't really exist. And only God is the true God. Paul's problem is with how they're holding that knowledge. Because that knowledge is not leading them to love their brothers and sisters. It's not leading them to care for others in the church. It's leading them to be puffed up over their brothers and sisters, to have this overinflated view of themselves and how much smarter they are and how much more enlightened they are and how much more they're able to exercise their freedoms over brothers and sisters in the church. And so Paul says, hey, if anyone thinks he knows something but is yet acting like that, is puffed up about their knowledge, you don't actually know it yet. You don't know in the way that you ought to know. And so mark this down. This is such an important truth. If your knowledge of the truth is not leading you into a deeper love for God and a deeper love for others, then you don't know the truth yet. You don't have a hold on the truth until the truth has a hold on you, until your knowledge of the truth is leading you to love God and love others more. 
Because theological knowledge does not equal spiritual maturity. Biblical knowledge does not equal spiritual maturity. Spiritual maturity is not measured in how much you know, but in how much you love. And so look, if you've maybe read a few theology books, or you've listened to a few podcasts, or you've heard a few sermons, but yet you still treat people in the church like garbage, and you're selfish towards them and boastful over them, you you may be a lot of things, but one thing you're not is, is spiritually mature. Because knowledge is not a substitute for love, and if you don't love, you don't really know yet. Look at at how Paul uh, furthers this in verse 3 when he says, but if anyone loves God, he's known by God. Paul is saying if anyone loves God, it's a sign that God knows them, that God has saved them. Think of it kind of like 1 John 4, which says the only reason we love God is because he first loved us. Because he went first, and that's what's most important. You see, what's most important is not what you know about God, but whether or not God knows you. Because when the Bible is using know in this context, talking about God's knowledge, it's talking about God knowing us in a saving sense. God is omniscient. He knows everything. He knows everyone everywhere at all times. But this is talking about being known by God in the sense where he has saved you. And he's made himself known to you. And he's revealed himself to you so that you now love him. I mean, think about it. We only know about people what they themselves choose to reveal to us. Right? Like, for example, if, if the only place you kind of interact with me is, is when I'm up here, Uh, you would have no reason to know that I love Bojangles and OU football if I had not told you eight million times up here, right? Well, in the same way, the only thing we know about God is what God himself has chosen to reveal to us. I mean, think back to what he's already said in 1 Corinthians 4 when he said, what do you have that you haven't received? Nothing. Like every piece of biblical and theological knowledge that you have is a gift from God. Everything you know about God and His Word and His world is something that God has revealed to you. It's a gift given to you by God. It's not something that you've earned or worked up or figured out on your own. And so Paul is saying, hey, if you really knew like you're supposed to, then you would know that you are not the reason that you know. And so why would you boast over others that you think don't know as well as you yet or just haven't figured it out yet? If you think you know, but that knowledge is leading you to boast over others, uh, you're like the kid who sits on the bench the entire game and then talks trash to the other team after the game because his team won. Like, he didn't do anything. That's foolish. Now, I I do want us to make clear in this. I want to make sure that we don't misunderstand what Paul is saying here. Paul is not saying that we should just kind of throw away knowledge and forget about it so that we can focus on love. That wouldn't really make sense because Jen Wilkin is right when she says, your heart can't love what your mind does not know. Now, I mean, I've, I've used this before, but uh, if I told you my favorite thing about my wife Braylon is her beautiful blue eyes, that they're just like oceans that I can get lost in. If you didn't know any better, this was like your first Sunday or something, you might think, man, that, like, he seems like a pretty great husband. That's pretty sweet. But it's not pretty sweet because her eyes are not blue. And so if I were to seriously get up here and say that, like you should probably think like, man, does he really love her? His favorite thing about her is something that's not even true. And so 
Look, we care about knowledge. Knowledge is the foundation of love. Your heart can't love what your mind does not know. And so does Paul. Paul goes on here in verses 4 through 6 to really offer us some of the richest Trinitarian theology uh, in the entire New Testament. Because he agrees with the Corinthians that the idols, uh, these idols, they're not real. That even though they function as gods and lords like masters for many people and they have a real effect in people's lives when people try to make them a god and a lord in their life, they're not actually real. They don't exist. They're not God and only God is the true God. And, and then Paul quotes from Deuteronomy chapter 6. Deuteronomy chapter 6 gives us what's known as the Shema, which is the, the, the Hebrew word in Israel, uh, the first word in Hebrew, the word hear. And this is really the fundamental confession of the Old Testament. Uh, Deuteronomy 6 says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and your soul and your strength. And so this is the fundamental confession of the Israelites, of, uh, of the Old Testament, is monotheism. That there is only one God, and that that one true God is the Lord, Yahweh, the God who spoke the world into existence and called out Abraham and appeared to Moses in the burning bush and delivered his people from Egypt and revealed his glory on the mountain to Moses. But did you notice what Paul did here? He included Jesus in this identity, in the Shema, to say that Jesus is this God. He, he put the name of the one true God, the Lord Yahweh, on Jesus. So there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things. And there's one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things. And even though he doesn't specifically mention him here, what we learn from the rest of, this, uh, of the New Testament is that the Holy Spirit is also included in the identity of this one God. And so the one true God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the Trinity. Three distinct persons, one God. And, and Paul wants us to have this knowledge. He wants us to know the true God, the true God who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He wants us to know that Jesus is God and Jesus is the way you come to know the triune God and that idols aren't really gods. But once again, Paul's not saying you just forget about knowledge in your pursuit of love because knowledge is the foundation of love. Uh, if we don't pursue knowledge, the danger is that we'll just start kind of worshiping our feelings and worshiping the experience and the emotional high that we get on a Sunday. And we, we care about theology. Paul does too. And, and we want to focus on that. We won't want to get rid of that. That's why we're launching the Theological Development Cohort next year that I would really encourage you to jump into uh, if you're able, because I just so deeply believe in the core of my guts that you spending a year just deeply studying and pursuing God and the things of God, that it'll do this work in you, that it will form you as a person who loves God and loves others more as you come to know, uh, better know this God that you worship, this God that has saved you. And so like we're, we're not going to downplay theology. We're going to continue to get after it uh, in, in kind of all the areas of the life of our church, but what we all have to be careful of is that we're not just pursuing knowledge for knowledge's sake, that we're not just pursuing knowledge to fill our head with facts, because Paul is right when he says, if you don't know, you, you don't, if you don't love, you don't really know. Spiritual maturity is not measured in how much you know, but in how much you love. 
Paul moves next in this passage to tell us that spiritual maturity is also demonstrated not in how you exercise your freedoms, but in using your freedoms to love. Look at verse 7 again with me. He says, However, not all possess this knowledge, but some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. So Paul moves to say, yeah, but not everyone in the church possesses this knowledge. Now, when he says that, he doesn't mean that there are Christians in the church who think that idols are really gods and that uh, God isn't the only true God. Uh, he's saying they used to worship these idols. They're former pagans who used to like go to these temples. Like This was an act of worship for them. And so even now, if they were to go to the temple and eat this meat in the temple, their, their conscience wouldn't be able to separate this, and they would think it's still an act of worship to this God. Gordon Fee puts it like this. He says, even though these idols have no objective reality, they do have a subjective reality in the lives of these former pagans who used to worship them. Here, here's what that means. Um, when I was eight years old, uh, I watched the movie Signs, which is a, a really, really incredible movie, but also really terrifying when you're eight years old. And so I spent like the next three or four years of my life sleeping with my head under the covers uh, because there were aliens in that movie. And uh, the, the aliens in the movie, like, they didn't exist. They, they weren't really real. They had no objective reality. They weren't real, but they had a real effect on me. But they had a subjective reality in my life, and they really affected me and scared the mess out of me. That's really what's going on here. These idols aren't really real, but they're having a real effect on the people who used to worship them. Because Paul's saying if these people who came out of these pagan backgrounds, if they go to the temple and eat this meat, their conscience, which is your self-awareness, think of it kind of like an internal compass that tells you where to go and what's right and what's wrong and whether you're right or you're wrong. Now, we're going to talk more about this in chapter 9, but we'll see that your conscience uh, can actually be wrong, that you can be off kind of in your compass and on what's really right and what's really wrong. That's what, part of what Paul means when he says that their conscience is weak. But what, what would happen is they, they'd go back to the temple and they wouldn't be able to separate this. They'd eat this meat and they think their conscience would tell them, oh my gosh, you're sinning. This is idol worship. You should not be doing this. You should not be eating this. Now, Paul is quick to remind us in verse 8 that food will not commend us to God, that we're no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do, that, that food doesn't save us. We're not less acceptable to God if we do eat. We're not more acceptable to God if we don't eat. But look at what he says in verse 9. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple... Will he not be encouraged, if his conscience is weak, to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. Thus, sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble." And so Paul's saying, even if you guys technically have the right and the freedom to eat this meat, the way you're exercising this right and freedom is leading to destruction for your brothers and sisters for whom Jesus died for. I mean, imagine the scenario here. 
Imagine that you're one of these former pagans who used to worship uh, these gods. Like, you went to these feasts in the temples. This was your thing. This used to be an act of worship for you. But, but God saved you, and you've begun to follow Jesus now. But now, you have other Christians in the church who maybe have been Christians for a little bit longer than you have, telling you, like, hey, why don't you come to the idol's feast with me uh, on Friday night and, and eat this meat? Like, the steak at this restaurant is so good. You have got to have this. And look, like we know these idols aren't real. They're not God. And it's just food. It's not going to do anything to you. You're, you're free in Jesus to do this. Just come and eat this meal with me. You don't want to miss out on this steak. And they keep pressuring you and pressuring you. And you think, well, you know, if they're a Christian and they're able to do this, then maybe I'm just being a little bit too strict and I can do this as well. And so you go to this temple and you go to this feast and you eat the food uh, at this feast, and your conscience can't separate it, and so you think this is an act of worship, and you're looking at this other Christian and thinking, well, they follow Jesus, and they're able to eat this meat, and they're fine, and so, man, maybe I'm free to follow Jesus and also worship this idol, and so you begin to be sucked back into the life of worshiping this idol at this temple, and eventually you're destroyed. Like that's, that's strong language that Paul uses here. He says the danger in this is that you would lead one of your brothers and sisters who used to worship these pagan gods back into idolatry and back on the path of destruction, and they would turn away from Jesus and stop following him, and they would be destroyed. And so for the sake of you getting to exercise your right and your freedom to eat this meat, like, you destroyed a brother or sister for whom Jesus died. You sinned against them by leading them into sin, and by doing so, you sinned against Jesus. And so Paul says, if that's going to happen, if I'm going to lead a brother or sister to stumble and fall back into idolatry, like, I'll give it up. I will never eat meat again because it's not worth it to cause a brother or sister to, some, to stumble. You see, what Paul is showing us here is that spiritual maturity is demonstrated not by how much you exercise your freedoms, but in how much you use your freedoms to love and how willing you are to lay your freedoms down for the good of others to build others up. And look, even if we're not going to probably face this specific circumstance of whether or not to eat food offered to idols in the idol's temple, like we do need to hear the principle that Paul is laying out here because this is a challenge to us. Because I'm sure you know that the culture that we swim in is a culture of asserting your rights and your freedoms and your preferences above anything else. I mean, why are we proud to be Americans? Because at least we know we're free, right? Like it, our whole culture's ethos and value is what's most important and what's going to make me happiest is getting to assert my freedoms and my rights and what I want to do without anybody telling me what I can't do and anybody holding me back. I mean, this is everywhere. Like, everyone is doing this. You see this in politics. Both sides of the political aisle are doing this. Have you ever thought about how every election in your life is the most important election in your entire lifetime? And how both sides are, are now saying, like, the fate of democracy is literally on the ballot here. And if you don't vote for our side, uh, like, America's going to pot. Like, it's just going to shambles uh, if we don't get in power. Some of the reason that both sides do that is because they know 
they're not going to come together with the other side. They're not going to compromise and lay down any of what they want to do and any of their supposed freedoms and rights. They're not going to come together to do something uh, for the good of the American people. And so you just have to win. You just have to make sure that your side stays in power. Or, or think about how when a major storm comes, people who really don't need it buy up all the bread and milk uh, bread and milk that they end up not even drinking and eating, keeping it from people who really might need it. Uh, and even though they don't need it, like they just hoard it because they're free to do that. Or think about how uh, a few months ago when there was a baby formula shortage, people who didn't need baby formula were buying baby formula so that they could price gouge and resell it to people who really did need baby formula. Now, was it right for them to do that? Of course not, but they, they technically had the freedom to do that and make some money, and so they did it. And, and beyond just those examples, like in all sorts of ways, big and small, you and I are being discipled every day by our culture to tell us that what's really going to make you happy, where you're really going to find life, is by getting to do what you want and getting to assert your freedoms and your rights. And so if you step into what Paul is calling us to here and you begin to be quick to lay down your rights and not exercise them for the good of others, everything around you is going to work to convince you that you are being an idiot. Like, to not get yours, to lose, to, to lay down and not get ahead is stupid in the eyes of the world. But look, this is what the gospel calls us to. And so let's talk about a specific example, and then we'll kind of draw out the principle. Uh, let's think about everybody's favorite, uh, drinking alcohol. Um, so while the Bible clearly calls drunkenness and getting drunk a sin, um, drinking alcohol is not called a sin in the Bible. Like, I'll, I'll say it as clear as I can. Drinking alcohol is not sin. Jesus did not turn the water into water or into welches. Uh, he turned it into wine. And we'll see this when we get to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, but people in the church at Corinth are literally getting drunk at communion. Like during the Lord's Supper, people are getting drunk, and I'm sure you know this, but that's not possible to do uh, by drinking too much Welch's, right? They're using real wine at the communion table. The Bible says that wine is a gift that God gives to gladden the hearts of man, that it's a good gift that we get to enjoy. And so look, like drinking alcohol is objectively not a sin. You are free in Jesus to enjoy the good gift of a good drink or a bad one. If you're a big two-buck chuck kind of guy, and that's your thing. Like, you're free in Jesus to do that. And what Paul is not saying here is that you have to give up that freedom anytime it offends somebody else in the church. Like, there are going to be people in the church whose conscience is stricter on an issue like this, and they're going to think that drinking alcohol is a sin, and if you, they see you drinking alcohol, they're probably going to judge you for that and think you're sinning. That's not what Paul is addressing here. Paul's not saying you give it up every time it offends somebody. What Paul is specifically addressing here is leading somebody back into idolatry and sin. And so let's say instead you've got somebody who's like a recovering alcoholic and you invite them over to your house for dinner and you drink a beer in front of them. And so they see you drinking this beer with your dinner and they think, you know, maybe like he or she is doing it and they seem to be fine. Maybe I'm just being a little bit too strict. Maybe I'm just being a little bit too hard on myself. And so they pick up drinking again and they drink with you and then they begin to fall back into drunkenness and alcoholism and, and they're put back on the path towards destroying their lives. And so for the sake of your right and your freedom to have a beer with dinner, 
Like you put somebody for whom Jesus died back on the path to destruction. You sinned against them, and in doing so, you sinned against Jesus. Paul's saying if you lead the weak back into idolatry and sin like that, you're literally being an antichrist. Is, is getting to exercise your freedom worth that to you? And so Paul's saying, man, if it's going to cause a brother or sister to stumble, if it's going to lead somebody back into sin, I don't have to do it. I'll give it up forever because I don't want to see a brother or sister stumble. I don't want to be the cause of that. They're too precious. They're worth too much. Jesus has died for them. And, and so th- there's a million different ways and a million different examples we could talk about how this plays out. But more than that, I want you to grasp the principle that Paul is laying out here because this principle is really foundational for all the specific ways that this is going to play out in your life. And so here's the principle. You know that you are growing in Jesus to the degree that you begin to be willing to and you actually begin to lay down your rights and freedoms for the good of others because it's going to build others up. Not when you say, I'm free in Jesus to drink this. I'm free in Jesus to smoke this. I'm free in Jesus to say this. I'm free to do this. I'm free to enjoy this. But when you say, yeah, I probably am free to drink this. I probably am free to say this. I probably am free to watch this. I probably am free to wear this. But if I watch this with this person, it might lead them back into a pornography addiction. It might destroy their marriage. It might lead them back into that addiction and that idolatry. I probably am free to wear this, but if I wear this with this person, it might make them feel like they need to keep up and they might plunge themselves back into debt to try to keep up with me. And so look, it's just not worth it. I'll give it up because I don't want to see somebody else stumble. They're worth too much. And so, like, and you realize you're not actually free if you have to do the thing you say you have the freedom to do, right? You're only actually free if you can lay down that freedom and lay down exercising that right for the good of others, And so you just need to know how you're tempted and how you're wired here. Because I'll just tell you, I grew up in a a church culture in a private school that was a a really legalistic environment with a ton of rules. Um, By by legalistic, I mean thinking that you can earn God's favor and you can earn your salvation uh, by keeping the rules and being a morally good person. And it was never explicitly said that way, but it was this kind of unspoken culture of, The more rules you keep, the more Jesus is going to love you, and the way you stay on Jesus' team, the way you keep yourself in God's good graces and you keep him happy with you is by making sure you stay a virgin until you get married and that you don't drink and that you don't smoke and that you uh, don't cuss and that you don't watch R-rated movies and all of these different rules. And so as I've kind of gotten out of that environment over the past five to six years, I've noticed how the pendulum has kind of swung in my own life to kind of where I'm at now to say like, man, I'm not going to follow all of these dumb extra rules that people put on me that aren't even in the Bible. I'm going to enjoy the freedoms that I have in Jesus. I'm going to enjoy my life. Like, of course I can watch this movie. Of course I can say this. Of course I can do this. And in a, out of a good and right desire to not have a relationship with God that's based on following the rules and thinking that if I become a good enough person, God is going to love me more, like the, the pendulum has swung in my life now to where I'm really uh, often unwilling to give up any of these supposed rights and freedoms if it's going to benefit someone else. 
Like, it, it's convicted me this week because this passage has revealed my own spiritual immaturity here, and I want you to ask if the same thing is true for you. Because I'll just tell you, like, I, I don't think, I know that, that most of us in here, that that's where we're going to fall. Like, most of us in here, whether we grew up in church or not, most of us don't have that stricter conscience that's telling us that things that we have the freedom in Jesus to do are, are sinful, and so most of us do kind of operate under the principle of like, yeah, I can drink whatever I want, I can smoke whatever I want, I can say whatever I want, I can watch whatever I want, I can do whatever I want because not drinking and not cussing is not going to make Jesus love me more. And you're right, not drinking and not cussing is not going to make you more acceptable to God, but that's not the principle that Paul is laying out here. The principle is you know you're growing in Jesus. You know you're deepening in spiritual maturity when your first impulse is not, I'm free to do this, but I'm free to give this up if it's going to benefit a brother or sister. I'm free to lay this down if it's going to help somebody else. I'm free to do that instead. You see, because all of this goes back to the gospel. This is what Jesus did for us. I mean, think about it. He really did have knowledge. He's God. He knows everything. And he really does have freedom. He doesn't need anything. He doesn't lack anything. But how did he use his knowledge and his freedoms to love and save and rescue us? Jesus had the freedom to stay up in heaven. He did not have to come die for us, yet he freely chose to humble himself and become a man. Like the God of the universe became a baby. The one that the Bible says uh, spread out the heavens like a curtain had to be swaddled. The one who spoke the world into existence had to learn how to talk, and he did that for you. Like he used his freedoms to lay those freedoms down and come and be fully human. And he grew up as a man, and he was obedient to God all the way to death, even death on a cross. Like he used his freedom to lay his life down for you. And when Jesus died for you, how many sins had you committed? It's not a trick question. The, the answer is none. They were all in the future. And so Jesus saw all the sins that you were going to commit, everything that you were going to be, all the ways that you were going to rebel against him with eyes wide open, and yet he still freely chose to lay down his life for you and lay down his freedoms to serve you and save you. He did not wait until you figured it out or you had the right knowledge. No, he just used his freedoms to lay his life down to save you. And so as people who have received that gospel, how can we turn around and refuse to love our brothers and sisters until they figure it out? How can we turn around and boast in what we know instead of rejoicing in the fact that all of us who know and love Jesus, whether we know the ins and outs of theology, are known and loved by God, are deeply and dearly known and loved by God, and that this is what's most true about us, that this is what has happened. Look, the gospel is the only thing that can move us from selfishness to selflessness, from pride and boasting to humility and lowliness that can make you care about your brothers and sisters whom Jesus died for enough to lay down your rights and freedoms for them. And so I'll just say it one more time. You know you are growing in Jesus, not when you can 
write a position paper on the doctrine of justification, but when the fact that you are justified, that you're saved and you're right with God and you don't have to do anything to earn it or deserve it, leads you to use that freedom to lay that down to serve others and care about brothers and sisters here in the church. Because spiritual maturity is not measured in how much you know or how much you flaunt your freedoms, but in how much you love. And so let's be a people who are characterized by this. Let me pray that we would. Jesus, thank you for your word. Thank you for the good news that all of us in here, whether we know the ins and outs of theology, whether we could give a deep explanation of doctrines or, or whatever are known and loved by you, that what you require is not us figuring it out or cleaning our lives up or being intellectual enough, but simple faith and trust in what you have done. And so, Jesus, I pray uh, that that good news and the example of the ways that you have laid down your rights and freedoms for us would move us to do the same for others. Uh, would you help us to be a people whose first impulse is not uh, to express our freedoms, but to be willing to lay those down if it's going to build others up. Jesus, left to ourselves, we are an incredibly proud and boastful and selfish people, and so would you change us? Would you make us a people who are selfless, who are humble, who are lowly, and who are looking to serve and give up so that others might be built up? Jesus, please do it among us. I pray that we would be a church characterized by this, that this would be true of us, that we would be a people who walk in spiritual maturity and love one another deeply. God, would you do that among us, even beginning now as we respond? I pray that you would. In your name, amen.